Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. California schools will look very different this fall. Under new guidelines released by California State Superintendent Tony Thurman yesterday, schools may require masks, temperature checks, social distancing, staggered schedules, outdoor classes, and continued remote learning. The state did not issue mandates, however, leaving individual districts to decide their own procedures. We'll dive into the challenges that schools, teachers, students, and parents will face as districts try to reopen schools safely during the pandemic. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. California State Superintendent Tony Thurman yesterday released guidelines for schools to safely reopen. And it's clear classes will be very different this fall, but exactly what changes are implemented will be decided by the school district. And there are many open questions. Joining us to discuss the guidelines and what schools, parents, teachers, and students should be considering before the school year begins, Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor for Education and Equity for KQED. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, Michael. Good to have you, and also good to have Dr. Dan Cooper with us, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Vice Chancellor for Clinical Clinical and Transactional Research at UC Irvine. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, and also want to welcome Karen Monroe. She's Superintendent of Schools in Alameda County. Superintendent, good to have you with us as well. Thank you. Good morning. Glad to be here. Good morning to you. And let me begin, if I may, Julia, with you. We're talking, first of all, about just guidelines, no mandates, it's all going to be optional, right? Made it clear that it will be up to local school districts and their local public health departments to really decide exactly which plans to put in place. The guidelines are pretty much just kind of like a roadmap. Here are some things that we think should be happening. Uh, these are some things that you should start considering. And it's very granular in a lot of different areas, um, everything from how to board buses, to uh, how to do meal services in classrooms, to how to supervise small children in group settings. So it really does, it's 55 pages, there's a lot of detail there, um, but it is sort of a starting point, I would say, for districts to begin to figure out their own plans, because as I think Thurman said, Thurman said one size you know, does not fit all. A rural district may have a different set of circumstances than, say, Oakland. Well, we've got over a thousand public school districts in California and right. a vast number of differences between them. But one thing it'll mean is that there's going to be some learning from home. There's going to be some distance learning, in other words, and staggered schedules probably. And also uh, they're looking to maybe have teaching outdoors and shifting teachers around too. Yeah, there are, you know, they put forth maybe four different um, different ideas of how school days could work, and they are all pretty radically different, Michael. And I think each of these scenarios is, is going to force districts to logistically confront a bunch of hurdles. So, you know, a couple examples, you know, the two-day rotation model, let's have two days in class, and then let's have two days in enrichment classes uh, outside of schools, which they talk about doing with partnerships with the schools, like maybe a park district or a nonprofit. 
And then like Fridays would be teachers having a planning day. So that just right there would take a lot of collaboration and coordination and, and sorts of details there. Then they're talking about, let it's calling a blended learning model. So let's say half the school attends one week, four full days, and the other half stays home and does distance learning, as you just said. And then they would flip flop the, the following week. And then each day of that week would, uh, everyone would do one day a week, everyone would do distance learning and the teachers would have a planning day. So, you know, that's just two examples. There's also what they call looping where teachers would stay with the same group of students for a couple of years. Um, they think that might decrease, you know, sort of health risks and exposures. And some schools, you know, already do this with some teachers and it's great if your kid has a good teacher for two years. If you're a parent and you've ever had a child stuck with a crummy teacher, uh, looping would be a nightmare. Um, and then there's this other idea of radical uh, of early shifts and late shifts of students. Uh, so some would come in the morning and then others would come in the afternoon. And that seems to create some complexity around meals and then who teachers interact with. And all of these, Michael, really would need such, such buy-in from the teachers and the teachers' unions. And I just think um, there are, of course, many big big hurdles to be worked out here. And that's what school districts are supposed to be doing right now. That's what Thurman's saying, like, go for it, start working on it. Well, when you use words like buy-in, I think also of the costs of this, because they're also recommending uh, social distancing and how this is going to be brought to fruition is a big question mark. But masks are recommended, temperatures taken, hand sanitizers. In other words, things that really are going to bring some revenue costs. Yes, you are so very right. And schools are acutely aware of this. Uh, most everyone I've spoken with at different districts is saying, look, they're asking us to do more here with less. Why less? Because the state coffers have taken a hit because of the economic uh, losses incurred by the pandemic. Uh, we're talking about, you know, having to make cuts to schools that were already making cuts to their budgets. So, you know, it's an interesting thing to consider, I think, especially in light of the last, you know, uh, hour of programming of yours, where we're talking about, you know, system change and equity issues across the country and what does that look like uh, besides defunding police? A lot of people who are demonstrating in the streets right now are talking about issues like healthcare, issues like education. How do we fund schools? And some of the funding uh, ties into, some people would say, the systemic racism that, that they're protesting right now. So built into the core of this issue of funding and rethinking schools right now are some of the very issues that are also driving people out into the streets at this moment and asking for equity. Again, Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor, Education and Equity for KQED. Uh, Karen Monroe is Superintendent of Schools with Alameda County. And uh, let's talk about how you're going to go about implementing all of this, Karen Monroe, because there's so many questions, as we've said. And one of the biggest questions is what Julia just touched on, equity. Michael, that's very true. There are uh, exponentially more questions than answers. Uh, but superintendents are working really hard uh, daily to try to make the best plans possible for their communities. So just uh, in terms of context, there are 18 school districts, 18 unified school districts in Alameda County. Uh, at this point, we're convening uh, those superintendents with our public health officer weekly, sometimes two times a week uh, to discuss these issues. In addition to that, the teams uh, in these districts are meeting with our professionals at Alameda County Office of Education to put in place plans. So for example, if you're the head of curriculum and instruction for your particular district, you're sitting with teams and saying, okay, what does learning need to look like? What are some scenarios uh, that we want to put in place for uh, reopening in the fall or perhaps a gradual plan for reopening? And uh, you're absolutely right. A lot of us are talking about the issues of equity surrounding this. We have seen already in this quick move to distance learning uh, what, what we see uh, in our schools often and exacerbated by distance learning, which is um, that there's uneven access for students and uh, sometimes uneven support for students who are uh, trying to do distance learning and parents who are um, trying to juggle homeschool with trying to earn a living. So um, all of those things are being considered in real time all day, every day by our district leaders. Well, there are many parents who simply can't afford to continue homeschooling. And you've also got to serve not only the low-income students, but you also have to really take into account many students who have high needs, particularly specific needs. 
That's right. That's right. That's uh, a huge part of the discussion as well, uh, that there are students who uh, have uh, special ed needs, for example, um, have IEPs, individual uh, educational plans, where they have particular goals that need to be met that uh, uh, can best be delivered, as we know, in person. And uh, that's not where we are right now. So we're really looking at strategies for uh, being able to mitigate for that loss in the short term. And then as we go into the fall, being able to put strategies in place that will eventually uh, bring back into um, a classroom setting those students who need it the very most. I noticed uh, this morning, Jill Tucker of the Chronicle had a column on essentially these guidelines that we're talking about. And she brought up some things that that really may not occur to many parents. What do you tell small children, for example, when they want to hug each other or about handling toys or different kinds of things that could, uh, I mean, the good news here is, and we'll talk with uh, in just a moment with Dr. Dan Cooper, but the good news is that uh, there, according at least to CDC, there are about 2% of COVID-19 cases uh, under the age of 18. But you've got all these children who are going to be exposing themselves, essentially, and there may be a new wave. In fact, uh, the guidelines even take into account the new wave. Right. So we do have uh, a little experience with this because almost since the first day of the shelter-in-place order, uh, we have been running, as have many many counties, um, what we're calling euphemistically uh, uh, pop-up child care centers. Uh, for emergency workers. So there are folks who are first responders who absolutely have to have childcare, especially for their youngest children. And so in cohorts of 10 or 12, we are keeping those children together. And um, I've observed one of those. There is, there is no way that you get a, a, a two-year-old to stay six feet away from another two-year-old. Um, so keeping them in a cohort uh, or a bubble is the best uh, strategy right now. And it makes it a lot easier if there should be a case to do contact tracing and to um, isolate a smaller group of children. So um, that, that is um, essentially uh, you know, a pilot uh, that we're, we're not running it intentionally as a pilot, but we're learning from it because the need was there. And when we get into contact tracing, we do get into uh, questions about surveillance and uh, privacy and all of that. But let me go to Dan Cooper. And, and Dan Cooper, again, is Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Vice Chancellor for Clinical and Translational Research at UC Irvine. Uh, there was a paper, and I think you were the lead author on that paper, 17 pediatricians put out, Dr. Cooper. And essentially, you were arguing that uh, it's better to have kids in school than um, not Right. I, that's a, uh, it's a tough decision to make. Um, we were sort of listening to our, our friends uh, from the business and economic side and from the, the impact that staying out of school has been having on many children, which is there are many adverse impacts of having kids away from other children and at home uh, uh, in learning environments, which, and I'm, I'm glad that Superintendent Monroe raised the equity issue. We know, for example, in our own Orange County that uh, access to high-speed internet can be problematic in, in more lower socioeconomic areas. And so it renders the ability to do distance learning, which is easier to do in middle and upper middle class homes uh, better. The, um, the issue of uh, the impact of bringing the kids back together from a public health point of view is, is really one that we have to consider. And it's sort of a double-edged sword, which as you pointed out, it seems to be a relatively small number of children have the disease. Uh, there is a idea afloat that actually like in the general population, there may be many more children who are COVID positive from standardized testing of, you know, nasal, the nasal PCR test, and this group may be a carrier group. And so the worry has been that when we bring these kids back, there's two things that could happen. One, uh, the kids might spread it among themselves, and as Superintendent Monroe pointed out, social distancing, I think not only in the younger kids, but throughout schools, including adolescents, is going to be challenging. And then they may inadvertently spread the disease to teachers, many of whom are older and some of whom have the comorbidities, and then to parents and other family members, and again, the equity issue raises its head because in lower socioeconomic areas of health disparities, 
Living conditions usually mean multi-generational families living under smaller spaces, often with a family member that may have um, a comorbidity like diabetes or hypertension. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that as we're seeing outbreaks, and we are seeing outbreaks throughout the state right now, predominantly in lower socioeconomic and minority neighborhoods, that uh, they, we do know that, that these can, can be transmitted from adult to child. And so it's really, really critical to ensure that the school is as safe a place as possible. So our consideration was simply based on the idea that 40% of the American workforce have school-aged children. The economy is going to restart. And unless parents and care providers feel that school is a healthy place, that's going to be hard to do. And so what we've concentrated on is how to make school a healthy place in these uncertain times. Well, I think you've, you've outlined what may be the central problem here for many parents. I mean, you look at going to school and you have the advantages of socialization and physical activities, in some cases nutrition because of the meals, mental health advantages, as you outlined. But parents are fearful, and they're especially fearful if they have children who are perhaps vulnerable medically, and I think also fearful because of multi-system uh, uh, infancy syndrome, inflammatory syndrome, excuse me, MIS in children, which has been compared to Kawasaki disease. There's a lot of fear here, in other words, uh, which I wanted to focus on with you because social distancing in itself is gonna be very hard to maintain, as I think we've clearly outlined here this morning. And some of these other questions that you brought up, uh, uh, despite what the World Health Organization might have said, kids can be asymptomatic uh, and they can spread possibly, I, I say the World Health Organization because they kind of backtracked on what they had said just yesterday that maybe the asymptomatic people aren't going to necessarily be spreading the disease. In other words, there's so many ways that the virus can be tossed around and uh, you, you have older teachers who are more vulnerable and so forth. Uh, you have to make it as safe as possible, but there's just so many difficulties and so many obstacles here. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, the, 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 the hard truth about this is until we have a vaccine and until we have better cures, there is no riskless way to move forward. That's very, very tough. I, I've worked very closely with the schools, and I just want to give a shout out to Superintendent Monroe and to all of the superintendents that I've talked to throughout the state. What a phenomenal group of people who are working overtime to put into place mechanisms to ensure that our our schools really are safe. So there's no risk-free way to reopen the schools. There's no risk-free way to keep kids at home. That There's no guarantee that keeping kids at home, parents going to work, is going to ensure the health of children. So what we have to do is look at these guidelines, study them carefully, create partnerships with the schools, with the regional schools, so we see what's working and what's not working. We need to do some testing within the schools. I think it's something we're trying to do in our region as well, is to find the funding to actually do some testing of, of kids, their families, and school personnel to, to learn more about whether or not World Health Organization is right. By the way, just to comment on that, I know it's very confusing for people to hear on one day that the cause of this epidemic is because of asymptom asymptomatic people who have the virus, and then the next day to hear that that's not a problem. And I think we all have to be very careful because now what World Health Organization said, yeah, but what about people who are infected and in the days before they develop symptoms, they actually may be spreaders. So we all have to take this with a, with a bit of um, judicious reasoning. It's maddening, so though. Yeah, for the, many people, it's maddening, you know, yeah. because one day the WHO says one thing and then the next day they go back on it. Michael, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And one of the most anxiety provoking features of this pandemic is that we do not know and do not have all the answers. And when you try to operate rationally without firm knowledge and especially the schools who care, the teachers and the superintendents and the administrators who care so much for the kids, they want us to say, if you do A, B, C, and D, we're going to be fine. And the first thing that we, uh, those of us in an academic, like I'm an academic pediatrician and I see patients, but I also study, is we have to be honest and say, look, we don't have all the answers, but here's, here's what the ground state should look like. Day one of school should look like this based on what we know, but that's not the Bible. That's just our best guess. And we have to work with the teachers and work with the schools and see which, which social distancing work. For example, the, the use of masks. This has been studied in children and other 
uh, epidemics and the flu. Younger children will wear masks for about the first two minutes, and then they start sharing them and playing with them. And so it may not, it may not work. How are we going to do hand washing? Uh, and <laughs> in Denmark, for example, which has had a pretty good record so far, their schools have been open for about a month. Uh, Denmark mandates that the kids wash their hands every hour. Uh, now, is that is that possible to do in our schools? Not in every one, I can assure you. It's, it's not going to be possible. And even when you do it, you get eczema and you get other problems with hand washing. So other schools in other countries have not been so lucky. So we've been seeing, we've seen outbreaks, unfortunately, in Korea, in France, in Israel, which had reopened their schools all about a month ago. So it's a real problem, but we've got to face it. And, you know, this kind of discussion and what uh, Superintendent Monroe and the rest of the superintendents are doing is is really uh, is really the right way to go. Well, there are a lot of guidelines here. There are a lot of guidelines here. And uh, I know there are many listeners who have questions and I want to at least open up the phone lines and give you, our listeners, an opportunity to bring your questions to the fore here. We're talking also about uh, possibility of budget cuts, as we mentioned before, we're talking to Julia McAvoy, and there's a difficulty sanitizing classrooms and uh, having custodial services and all the rest of that if you're going to be having budget cuts, although uh, uh, the governor has put out some possibility of the state providing uh, personal protective equipment. We'll talk about that as well. But I want to hear from you, our listeners, because I know many of you have questions. Do you feel safe sending your kids back to school in the fall? Are you concerned about what school is going to be like during the pandemic? And if you're a student, a parent, or a teacher, we want to hear from you. You can join us now, and we welcome your questions as well as your comments. The toll-free number to join us at is 866-733-6786. I'll repeat that. 866-733-6786, and you can join the program. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Julia, could I go back to you, Julia McAvoy, and find out what the governor has said is going to be provided in the way of PPE? Yeah, the state looks like it's trying to make sure that schools have PPE. Um, That seems to be a positive. Uh, He's also talked about you know, $4.4 billion from the Federal CARES Act going to schools and um, portion of that would go specifically to schools that have large numbers of special education students. And then uh, $2.9 billion would go to schools. He wanted initially to see those go to schools that had 55% uh, high need students. Um, the legislature kind of balked at that and said, let's use the local control funding formula Uh, where we have a base amount for each student and then we add on funds for high need students and then we add on more funds to districts that have these majority concentrations of students. So they're kind of wrestling with that, but everybody on the spectrum here is certainly looking to the federal government to um, provide more money for schools. Um, And if it doesn't happen, I think how we're going to actually pay for the many, many, many things that the guidelines are calling for, even testing, testing of students that Dan Cooper mentioned. I'm so curious about that um, because I read a story in the New York Times where it said that summer camps are being pitched by testing companies and the testing companies are charging $90 to $145 per test per kid. And so like, what do those tests even feel like for children? I mean, anyone who's had a COVID-19 test knows that there's this very long swab that goes down your nose. I don't think kids are gonna go for that, (laughs) certainly. So can they spit in a test tube? Does that have to be done on a videotape? sent in and then turned around. I I just have so many questions around that piece of the puzzle here. And the cost of testing is just one tiny piece of this big funding problem. And as uh, we've been saying, there are many questions and I know listeners will have questions and we'll go to your questions as well as your comments when we return. One of the big questions uh, is how is all this going to work with the unions? We'll maybe go to Kara Monroe on that. And I want to talk with Dan Cooper a bit also about the fact that there are about 800,000 classified disabled students in the school systems. Uh, We're talking about 6.2 million students, but that's a lot of disabled students, including cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. There's lots to talk about here, and I know you have questions. We'll go to those when we return. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, and we're talking about the changes that schools will need to make to reopen in the fall with Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor, Education and Equity with KQED, and Karen Monroe, Superintendent of Schools at Alameda County. 
And Dan Cooper, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Vice Chancellor for Clinical and Translational Research at UC Irvine. And do you feel safe sending your kids back to school in the fall? Are you concerned about what school will be like during the pandemic? Are you a student, parent, or teacher? We want to hear from you, and you can join us at our toll-free number. The number to call again is 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And I want to remind you that uh, we are, well, actually, let me go to some comments here. Um, let me begin with a comment from Radu, and I'll go to you on this, Dr. Cooper. Radu writes uh, these, in, in fact, a couple of comments along these lines. Uh, Radu says, these anti-COVID measures in schools are totally unnecessary. Were there any school-based outbreaks in the months before the shutdown? No. Cases of kids transmitting the disease to vulnerable parents or grandparents? Also, no. Teachers, not that I've heard of, just open the schools as normal and stop with the nonsense. And Penny says, if California is ramping up testing like the governor says we are, why um, wouldn't we resume school as normal but just test every student and every teacher on a regular basis? Could we test everyone on Sunday and go to school on Monday, repeat every Sunday? So a couple of, of there's a comment and a question there for you, Dr. Cooper. What, uh, let's start with the comment that this is all unnecessary. And the question seems to be going back to testing once again. And couldn't we just test and let all the rest of it go by the wayside? Well, um, well I appreciate the sentiment that, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could just restart school? But I, I have to tell you, having looked at the data really, really carefully, and as someone who believes that schools should restart, I think the right way to do that is carefully. I think it would be wonderful if we found, in fact, that once we reopen the schools here in the United States and we look at the data around the world, that in fact, it's true that children never spread this disease upwards, either to family members or teachers. And I think it would be wonderful if we showed that in a community that's having an outbreak, that adults are not passing this disease on to children and then they through their schools to other children. But we don't, we don't know the answer. And when we look around the world, there are plenty of examples where outbreaks of the disease have occurred in schools that have reopened. Often, uh, there was a laxity in the, uh, the mitigation procedures that have been recommended. So the point of doing this is ultimately to show what's the right way to do this, what's the safest way to do this, what's the least expensive way to do this, I think parents, many parents have to feel that school is a, is a healthy place, and this is one way to do this. Now, as far as the testing go, um, if, if I test someone on Monday and they become infected on Tuesday and they start shedding virus on Wednesday, I may not have known it. So testing itself is not necessarily the answer. You pointed out that the nasopharyngeal swabs, that's the one where you have to really push high into the nasopharynx. You push it way up where it's very, very uncomfortable, and I think uh, people who've had this know it, um, it's really going to be very, very difficult for kids. Now, there are, there is, there are procedures now that involve just the, uh, the front part of the nose. Those are being validated. We're going to try to use those at some of the schools in Orange County. And the third issue with testing is the one that I think you brought up, which is confidentiality. So this is a, and I'm sure the superintendent Monroe is having headaches about <laughs> about this as well, is when you say, and as it does in the guidelines, well, we, a child is positive. Well, how do we know that a child is positive? Are we expecting the child's primary care provider to call Superintendent Monroe and say, by the way, Jimmy Smith was found to be positive on Tuesday. What have you done about this? This is not exactly how we have had the relationship between FERPA, which is the guidelines for uh, health information and other information on students, and HIPAA, which is the guidelines around that. So these are, these are really tough issues that we have to have. So to your viewer, I would say, absolutely, I appreciate it. I, I, I wish that in a year or even less, we could demonstrate that there is, the transmission was overrated, but we've got to demonstrate that. We have to prove that with data before we can just say, go back to school. Superintendent Monroe, you want to address this? I'd like to hear what you have to say on it, I, please. I do. Um, so... I completely understand that sentiment, and please know we're hearing it frequently, as well as the exact opposite uh, sentiment by many parents who um, are hesitant to send their students back to uh, school at all. Um, but as uh, Dr. Cooper says, this is highly dependent on uh, the cooperation of students and families and, and parents uh, in terms of testing. We cannot uh, 
mandate um, that students uh, be tested when we think they're positive, we can actually, as part of a return to school, um, implement uh, testing. And we have found, as has been stated, some issues with how are we going to fund this? Who's going to administer these tests? How frequently? Um, and yes, we've already had cases in schools uh, and mostly because you cannot control for uh, the contact, the points of contact students and staff may have outside of schools um, with their families and their communities. And so that gets um, brought into the schools and uh, then uh, we speak to public health and they are speaking to their own doctors and uh, ideally contract tracing uh, is a part of that. But it's definitely a huge concern and we are being very cautious and also feel that it's, uh, we need to move towards bringing students back to school. And part of our plans are, we know that at any given time, we may have to shelter in place again for a short amount of time, or we may have to be, we will have to be nimble enough to respond to whatever is happening, to whatever the current researcher data are telling us. About oh, you have a lot of challenges and uh, I wanna get some callers on with us. Uh, let's start, Chris, with you. Thank you for waiting, you're on the air, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um, one of the issues that hasn't really been addressed, or we're, we're certainly trying to address it, is how do the kids get to school? AC, I'm on the board of AC Transit. They carry about 30,000 school kids a day. In some areas, some schools are located in urban areas where we've got good service, and if kids are going to school half days or whatever, they can just take a regular bus. But the Oakland School District in particular has located a bunch of schools where there are no people and there is no bus service. So we run special bus service to those schools, and those buses very often do a school run or a couple of school runs and then do a couple of Transbay runs. And Chris, you're raising, a, I think, a, a very important question, and there's been a lot of talk, I know, about how to seat kids on school buses, but what about transportation in general? Can I go to you, Julia, on this, Julia McAvoy? Yeah, no, he's raising a big issue. I mean, Karen and I talked about this recently. Um, you know, uh, the guidelines are telling the districts to um, consult with their providers and come up with a plan. Well, let's imagine that you've got a morning shift of kids and an afternoon shift of kids. And you can only have, eight, let's say, eight kids on a bus, depending on how far apart they have to be spaced. Suddenly, you've increased your need for, for buses, You've, <laughs> and that increases costs by quite a bit. Again, we come back um, to funding. It all sounds you know, great, let's keep safe, let's create distance and space and do this and that. But if you don't figure out a way to pay for all the extra buses you're going to need, I, I think you're running up against a, fu a fundamental problem. And this gentleman who just called has really nailed it, especially in Oakland. Um, so I'd love to hear Karen's thoughts on that, too. Can we hear from you, Superintendent Monroe, on this? Absolutely. Um, this is probably in all the uh, um, conversations I've been in, I've been in a lot of conversations at the state level. And um, Chris, I'm very well aware of the routes that you're referring to uh, in Oakland. This is one of the ones, and you'll see in the guidance that uh, it, it simply says that uh, a plan will be required for distancing students on buses where folks in districts are absolutely looking for numbers and uh, what that distance would be and, and what would be required. Uh, you'll also see in the plan that they are absolutely sticking with the requirement of six feet uh, with the caveat, as you said in the beginning, in the introduction, that uh, these are local decisions and uh, as long as they're based on local public health guidance, that uh, that would be sufficient. So we have superintendents and others, especially for our special ed population who uh, depend on transportation, trying to figure out, asking questions like, can, can we sit one student to a seat if they're facing a particular way? Uh, can we skip rows even if it isn't six feet? So there are going to be some compromises made to ensure that we are serving students to the best degree possible. And in terms of um, public transit, there will need to be some plans put in place based on what uh, broad guidance we have. There is no magic solution to this. So um, distancing, and, and it will mean that buses are half, maybe only a quarter full, and districts will need to have more transportation for sure. 
Let me bring another caller on. That's you, Jeff in San Leandro. Good morning. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am a veteran teacher down in Hayward. I've been there for 26 years, and I also have a school-age kid in San Leandro. And so, you know, my comment, I just wanted to call in to really support um, Su Superintendent Monroe's idea about pods or bubbles. Um, I really feel strongly that this is the only way to open up the school safely. Um, actually having pods, obviously with the elementary schools, it's going to be a lot easier because you already have it in that way. Um, for the high school kids, keeping the kids in one classroom and having the teachers rotate in. Um, we already know that a, a great deal of parents are not going to be sending their kids back. I'm estimating 30 to 40 percent. Um, so this would be a way to figure out which teachers are physically and, you know, health-wise capable of going in, and the other ones would continue distance learning. I think the guidance, I'm really concerned about the guidance. It's way, it's far too open. And I think that any guidance, um, at least locally, that we put out um, has to have a, maybe a concentration on pods and how pods can be done effectively. All right, Jeff, you've um, made the case for pods. I appreciate hearing from you. And uh goes back to, again, how all this is going to be worked out. And we have more questions than answers at this point, I'm afraid. Let me read some comments that are coming in. David writes, so the guidelines state that students are encouraged to wear masks while adults at schools will be mandated to wear masks. As a high school teacher, I do not find this acceptable. Wearing masks uh, must be mandatory for students this age. Another listener tweets, any family that can keep their kids home without burden should be encouraged and supported by the district to do so to keep numbers down in schools for those who cannot. Distance learning works well for many teens. Brings up a question, uh, Superintendent Monroe, that I'd like to go to you on, and that is, uh, what about students who, um, for example, want to do impact learning, uh, or excuse me, want to do remote learning, um, and did, I mean, will they have an option, uh, do you think, for example, in Alameda County to, if they want to learn remotely, they can learn remotely? So again, there are 18 school districts who are making decisions based on what's going to work best for their uh, communities. But what I can tell you is, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, an informal survey that we've been taking has uh, found that 50 to 60 percent of parents um, that are being surveyed are in favor of some sort of hybrid option, um, whereas about 15 to 25% uh, of parents are um, favoring school as normal, just, um, you know, so about a quarter of parents are looking at, let's just get them back five days a week, and about half um, are looking at some sort uh, of hybrid all of our districts are looking at uh, different tiers or, or phases, if you will, of how they might bring students back in an, in an effort to be nimble and responsive to one, what families want, um, what students need, and three, the, the, the stark reality of what's possible, both fiscally and in terms of uh, the numbers of both staff and students. So yes, I think there are a lot of districts who are discussing uh, the fact that they want to uh, honor um, parents. I mean, it is a parent decision that, you know, uh, as to whether at this point anyway, uh, to keep their student home. Uh, and continue to homeschool them and engage in distance learning. Uh, and as we go, uh, we'll, we'll definitely see how many folks are, are um, taking districts up on that opportunity. Again, it's, it's also an equity uh, issue that we're facing. And I want to bring another caller on with us. Emily joins us from Ventura. Emily, welcome. You're on the air. Emily, are you Thank with you. us? Hello. I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? No, I can. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, uh, well, my comment is that I really feel like this all boils down to child care. Um, the reason that we end up having disease outbreaks in schools, mostly elementary schools, is that parents don't have a place for their kids to go other than school if they're sick and the parent has to go to work. A lot of parents don't have the option to take sick time, um, particularly for um, me. I live in a military base, and I'm surrounded by um, farms. So a lot of the children at our school are the children of farm workers and of essential military personnel. We don't really have that same option of being able to, you know, not go to work. 
Um, and so those kids end up going to school if they're sick, and that's how these things spread. And we just don't have a good solution for that. And I don't really feel like maybe that's entirely the school districts or the school responsibility to solve that problem. Um, but that that's a huge huge problem that we have that needs to be solved. It is a major problem. And uh, Julia McAvoy, can you shed some light on what's being done or in the guidelines to really encompass the whole problem of child care? Well, all I know is that, you know, districts that have already experimented with the so-called pop-up child care already, that's happened in Marin, that kind of led them to tippy-toe down the path toward opening up some small classes of students with special learning needs early on. They kind of built on their expertise of uh, dealing with childcare for people, but but Emily's point is, is really good and it gets back to equity. Um, I think we've been hearing some comments here from teachers as well and just the fact that, uh, you know, some teachers have, have children of their own, um, you know, how do they handle child care for their kids if they're going to be teaching. And then I think we have teachers who also, you know, I think part of the logistics of what Karen Monroe and other uh, local, more local district superintendents are dealing with is if we have teachers who can't uh, teach inside schools because they have like a health condition or they live with someone who's elderly and they're concerned, can, how do they, how do we handle them? How do we handle the fact that they still need to be employed? Would they be doing remote teaching only? So, you know, childcare, I don't have exactly the remedy there. Um, There's not a lot of specific guidelines that I came across that I remember anyway from this document. and then just sort of getting back to parents and will they be able to um, not send their kids if they don't want to. The guidelines do specifically say request that you want to do distance learning and your local um, school will make the decision. But they do say request that if you want it. So I, I think they're going to support the parents who aren't comfortable doing that. Yeah, I don't remember much at all in the document itself about child care. But Julia McAvoy, again, is senior editor. For education and equity for KQED, I want to go back to Dr. Dan Cooper, who's Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Vice Chancellor for Clinical and Translational Research at UC Irvine. And Dr. Cooper, since you were the um, lead in that paper suggesting that kids really need to go back to school, I'd like your response to a couple of comments that are coming in here. One is from Jenny, who says, I'm an elementary school teacher and I'm hesitant to conduct in-person teaching again with my students. The population of my school is predominantly low wealth and is located in an area of Oakland that is seeing spikes in coronavirus cases. It's hard to keep children away from each other and also expect them to cover coughs and sneezes properly in a closed environment. And once the weather turns cold, it's game over all over again. I vote no on returning physically to school. And here's Jamie who says, I'm the father of a four-year-old girl who's supposed to start school this August. I do not feel safe having her start school in two months with all the uncertainties. Some response from you, Dr. Cooper, on those two? Right. These are really important questions. I don't have all the right answers. Um, I can tell you that the experience in some countries has been, for example, Denmark, quite good. And actually, they don't wear masks there, but they do more screening than we do. It's going to be really important for the schools, and this relates to your previous caller and comments about screening uh, and whether the schools are really going to be able to do that. And what we hope is that they are. It raises questions that were brought up in the uh, California Department of Education document. How are we going to do the screening? Do we even have enough thermometers at the schools to do temperature screening? This is not an insignificant issue. What are we going to do when we uh, when we find a child at school already who is evidencing signs of symptoms? Where are we going to put this child? Uh, And I don't think these are reasons not to open the schools. These are reasons to make sure that when we open the schools, we do this right. Because I I think that most uh, educational and medical observers have noted that the adverse events of keeping kids away from school can match the adverse events of sending the kids back to school. We do know, and fortunately, that the disease itself is far less symptomatic in children. And you brought up the multi-inflammatory syndrome. Yes, that's a real concern. I will say it's very rare. Um, Influenza can cause terrible disease in children. And again, this is not good, but the kids themselves are going to be relatively healthy. The question that the teacher raised is a really appropriate one. And that's where the use of PPE, the use of individual judgments on the part of teachers who may have comorbidities, as Superintendent Monroe brought up, 
is absolutely relevant to this. But I do think that uh, we, we really need to think about starting schools in a safe way. And I think we can do it. And let me bring another caller aboard. That's you, Kristen. Thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Okay, thank you. Yes, thank you for bringing up the issue of teachers. Um, I appreciate the discussion. We definitely have to protect the health of teachers. I'm a teacher and a parent. Um, I had a lot of successes with teaching on, from the online learning, using a lot of the online platforms. Even though I teach in Richmond, California with low-income students, I was able to serve at least 85% of them. I only had two no-shows. I'm working together with the administration, and we have a lot of wraparound services. The secretary even made phone calls every day to make sure the kids were engaged and logging on. Um, I would like to push back against the idea that adverse events from keeping kids out of school could be, are somehow parallel or somehow um, the same as, as um, bringing kids back too soon. Bringing kids back too soon um, could have deadly impacts on children, teachers, parents. Um, being cautious and keeping them out uh, would not be the same, would not have the same um, negative impacts. We need to think about this, um, really take our time. And also, I don't have the data to support it, but anecdotally, my kids were thriving online. I had kids who were very shy and hesitant in class, who really came out of their shell and shine. They were my digital online superstars. <laughs> well, let me thank you for that call. I'm going to go right to another caller who may have a different perspective. That's Holly, uh, who is also a teacher, calling us from San Jose. Holly, go ahead, please. Hi, sorry, turning off my radio. Yeah, um, I'm a middle school teacher, and um, I'm afraid that the easiest thing is going to be to um, just have kids go back to distance learning, and that really, really doesn't work. And I saw NPR's study that showed online that there's very little student participation, and I only had 50% of my students turn in any work at all. And this is a very motivated group of students that's very diverse. And I just think it's inherently inequitable because there's no way it's I think that classes that are getting more participation probably have parents that are more able to be working with their kids. So that's that's going to be giving more to advantaged families inherently. And then um, busy work. I think busy work is not impossible to do distance, but actual new learning is is virtually impossible. So. I really think we need to find an in-person solution and any argument that, you know, that there isn't money, I just, I don't understand. We live in the, you know, richest country, the richest state, and I live in one of the richest cities in the world. How can we not find the money to make this happen? Holly, I thank you for that call. I'm going to go back to Julia McAvoy on this, uh, who's an equity expert and covers equity okay. issues. Julia, actually, I'm looking uh, at another way in here from a listener named Bill who says, a friend of mine is a middle school teacher in Daly City where virtual classrooms will continue through the fall semester. He says quite a few students are not doing their homework. So an unintended consequence of distance learning will be the difficulty in grading fairly at the end of the school year. A lot of these issues are coming back to remote learning. And what do we know, Julia? What do we need to know in terms of equity and remote learning? Well, look, one thing that's notable in the guidelines is they, they are basically saying we, c we are not laying out any uh, guidance for instructional minutes taught right now, which is really fascinating because how do you, in fact, go about holding different schools, different teachers even within schools accountable for, in fact, reaching their students and helping them thrive and grow, whether that's, especially in distance learning, right, because we really don't know how to do that yet there. And we heard from, for example, uh, the LAUSD superintendent, Butner, who said, you know, I've got uh, different platforms that aren't even married with my school umbrella platform, I'm talking about internet platforms here, to track student participation. We can't even really track student participation online right now. It's a mess. So there are so many fundamental things that have to go into place in order to keep track of the kind of instruction that's going on, whether the kids are thriving or not. And all of these are things that have to be solved. Um, so, and that's going to take just planning time and money with teachers and their time to, to get their input, right, that we have to pay above and beyond what we would normally pay them. And let me just throw into the mix nurses. We've been talking about 
uh, <laughs> protocols in buildings if a child should show and present to be ill. Uh, let's say a kid's got a regular illness and they go to the nurse. Well, how many full-time nurses do we have in Oakland Public Schools right now? My understanding is that uh, they go between schools. There is not one school uh, per nurse per school. And here we have uh, teachers now being asked to take temperatures and monitor children's health rather than nurses who might be much more qualified to do such a thing because we don't have enough of them. So again, it's just a very tough situation. I think the last, uh, the last person who called Holly uh, talking about the, the money issue, it, you know, it all kind of just keeps circling back right there. Could I circle back just for a minute? We got only a couple minutes left here to you, Dan Cooper, something I alluded to before. I'd like to hear what you have to say about those, not all of them, 800,000 though classified as disabled students, uh, but about students specifically who have disorders that affect their immune systems. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, uh, so far, uh, you know, the data is pretty sparse. Uh, kids with cystic fibrosis in Italy seem to have done okay. There are obviously cases of uh, cystic fibrosis is a, a congenital lung disease, uh, and it also affects the immune system. Uh, children with asthma, there's a, sort of contradictory information. On the one hand, folks expected that those children would be more adversely affected and we haven't seen that yet and it may have to do with the fact that they're taking anti-inflammatory medicines anyway for their diseases uh, children with cancer who are on immune suppressors are certainly at risk uh, the, there are not fortunately many children in california who are hospitalized but there seems to be uh, an a, a, the, the fact that if you have cancer as a child and you have immunosuppression the other related issue is the child with uh, learning disabilities, and that's where we really have to think carefully about PPE because I'm sure Superintendent Monroe knows there is almost no way to do physical distancing with these kids. Washing their hands means that the teacher is washing their hands. Going to the bathroom means, in many cases, that the teacher is going to the bathroom with them. This is where we have to consider real PPE for these uh, teachers if we're going to send these kids back to school and we have to study this we have to know what's going on in the schools um, i think it's so important for us to uh, identify certain schools selected throughout the state where we do testing we don't charge them for the testing and we do it correctly so that we really can begin to understand what the safe school environment looks like. We're going to have to leave it there, Dr. Cooper, but thanks to you and thanks to Julia McAvoy and thanks to Superintendent Monroe. There will be no field trips or school assemblies, apparently. That's going to be a universal, and school is not going to be the same. We'll continue to follow this. Thank you for being a part of this hour. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.